Alright, so tonight, um, this is the third in our series on knowing right from wrong. Tonight we're looking at what's called the natural law. And this might seem a rather abstract title, but it's actually talking about something that I think every Catholic has an instinctive sense of. So a Catholic, we might think we're right about everything, and we are. <laughs> um, but we expect, we expect other people to be able to know what's right and wrong. We don't, if we've got family and friends that aren't Catholic, that aren't Christian, we don't think that they're going to know nothing. Well, the natural law is kind of the technical way of talking about the fact that everybody, even if they don't know Jesus, don't know the Bible, is able to know right from wrong. So that, in a nutshell, is what we're looking at tonight. So here's an image of somebody on a loudspeaker speaking. Well, God speaks to us. And what I want to start by pointing out is that he speaks to us in the language of theology, in two different ways, naturally and supernaturally. So what do I mean by that? Well, first let's think about natural revelation. So what God shows us about himself using natural means. So God shows us lots of things about himself. Um, I have three pictures here to show something. So... An image of beauty, this, in a sense, in itself, shows us something about God. An image there of a bird feeding her young, this, when we look at nature, also shows us something about God. He is the creator, he made all things. That's an image of how God cares for his creation and cares for us. And here, uh, an image of the solar system. Um, that when we look at the natural world, we can see that God has order, structure, physical laws. This reveals to us something about him. And all of this is what we call natural revelation, him speaking through natural things. Well, I now want to say supernatural revelation. So, still God speaking to us, still God revealing something to us, but not just in these natural ways, but supernaturally. So, um, here we have an image of Jesus feeding the 5,000. So, naturally he reveals that he cares for us, he feeds the way through the image of the bird feeding her young. Well, supernaturally in the Bible, he has shown us this directly in a miraculous way by feeding with the 5,000. So the same truth that you can kind of see an image of in the bird caring for her young, and that being an image of what God the Creator, how he relates to his creation, we see even more directly, not a different truth, but the same truth, supernaturally revealed in the feeding of the 5,000. Then here, the image of the solar system. So God naturally reveals that he is a God of order, structure. The Bible tells us, you have disposed all things 
by measure and number and weight. So in the Bible, supernaturally, God has directly revealed that this is what he's like. The same truth that you could have naturally known by the laws of physics, but that we have supernaturally contained for us in the Bible. The image of the beauty of creation showing us that God is beautiful. Well, this is an image of Jesus, or Jim Caviezel. Um, I always have beautiful people playing Jesus. I've never seen an ugly Jesus. Um, I don't know if you've ever thought what Jesus must have looked like, but he, he was God incarnate. He must have somehow looked perfect. So as a man, he somehow wouldn't have been a kind of girlish, pretty, distracting beauty, but it would have been somehow a perfect beauty. He'd have somehow looked right. Um, however we artistically portray that, what we see in Jesus not just because he's not physically described for us in the Bible, but in the Gospels, that portrayal of him shows us, kind of in the more general sense, what is beauty? He is beauty. And so, supernaturally in the Bible, we see beauty shown to us that way. So what I'm trying to spell out in all these images is the same thing that you could see naturally you have more directly shown to you supernaturally. Not a different truth, but the same truth, but being told to you in a different way. Let me spell that out a little more technically. So, this column here, supernatural revelation, uh, rather, natural revelation. This column here, supernatural <coughs> revelation. Where do you see natural revelation? You see it in nature. Where do you see supernatural revelation? In God's deeds and in God's words. How do you deduce this? Well, observation, reason, philosophy. So here we have a scientist looking at a microscope. That pattern, what a scientist is doing, is he is observing, using reason, thinking, he is deducing truth, not from the Bible, not a different truth from the Bible though, but just a different way of knowing the same truths that are available in the Bible. Now what is given to us in supernatural revelation actually is many things that the scientists cannot know. Um, we refer to in the letter to a Jew, he refers to what he calls the deposit of faith, which is an image, if you think of a bank, having a deposit put in the bank. Jude talks about how there is this deposit of faith that's been given once to the church, but given once for all time. So that deposit is available in every generation to be drawing from the bank drawing from it in a way that we don't kind of empty the bank, it's there for every generation, but this truth that has been supernaturally revealed. And it's transmitted, it's handed on to us by scripture, tradition, and the magisterium, the teaching authority of the church, the pope and the bishops. With me so far. Okay, now, I was saying a bit earlier 
that supernaturally we are being told the same things that we could have known naturally. So that we're told in the Bible that God is perfect, that he's beautiful, that he's ordered, that he's rational. And yet, I also said that naturally, using reason, using philosophy, studying the cosmos, we can know that same truth already. So why do we need it to be supernaturally revealed? Why do we need him to say it again in the Bible? Any thoughts? In the sense this Saint Tom I'm going to quote St. Thomas's answer, which is kind of technical, but it's actually saying something that I think we'd all kind of feel almost instinctively. Is it to do with our limitations? Our uh, minds kind of, kind of make mistakes. Make mistakes, limitations, so that we're able to know it, but it's not easy to know. Um, so in order for us to be able to know those same truths easily, he's supernaturally revealed it in the Bible. St. Thomas puts it this way. He says, because without revelation, those truths about the God which human reason could have discovered would only have been known by a few, and that after a long time, and with the admixture of many errors. So an image, an example of this is often, um, we think of philosophy and philosophers. In ancient Greece, there was, in Athens, the school of the great philosophers, Plato, Aristotle. And they knew a great many of the same truths we knew. No, that there is one God, that he is perfect, that he is goodness, and so forth. But... That great school of philosophy, well actually, there haven't been many such great schools. And even at their time, there were only a small number of philosophers, most of the people weren't educated, so only a few people knew what they were able to know. So supernatural revelation, the Bible, and what's in the Bible, makes it available easy to everybody. After a long time, so if you think philosophically and the history of philosophy, to get to the time of the Greeks when this school of Greek philosophy existed, well, humanity had been around, you could say, um, depending when you're looking at evolution, at the origins of humans as humans, certainly tens of thousands of years, um, and only by the Greeks had that been known after a long time. So supernatural revelation means it's easily known, um, and I don't need to think about it for a long time. And then, even the ancient Greeks, though they knew a lot of things, they also had a lot of errors mixed in there. So supernatural revelation, and in particular, we're thinking tonight about knowing right from wrong about behavior, is able to be known by everybody in the natural revelation. But in practice, in order for it to be known by everybody quickly and purely without errors mixed in, we're given supernatural revelation.
Okay, I'm now shifting focus onto the question of God's law. Law meaning what he's told us to do, what he's commanded us to do. So thinking about behavior, the right and wrong way to behave. So not just thinking that God is beauty, God is perfect, God is order, but what has God said to us about how we are to live, about how we are to behave? Well, he's, what he said, he said in two ways. He said it supernaturally, and he said it naturally. So here are two images summing that up supernaturally. An image of Moses being given the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. Now that doesn't happen every day. You know? This was a unique moment where God, not naturally but supernaturally, intervened and told us the Ten Commandments. And he told us. He didn't just tell Moses and say, but don't tell anybody else. They were given to Moses all of humanity. And then we might think too, so this is an image of Jesus preaching on the Sermon on the Mount, giving the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, if you remember, Matthew 5 is primarily, or the biggest summary of all of his moral teaching, how to live. So when Jesus comes from heaven to earth, he doesn't just come to die for us and rise again, he comes to teach us, to teach us supernaturally lots of things about God's law. So, these are direct, miraculous interventions that don't happen every day. This is how God has supernaturally made his law known. Well, the point is he's also made his law known naturally. So here, I've got an image of... Um, it's called the School of Athens. Um, I should have my history hat. This, I think it's... Hmm. No, I can't remember the artist. Anyway, very famous work of art, School of Athens. Uh, you can see it in the Vatican Museum. Um, and this has all the, the philosophers um, arguing with each other, discussing in the School of Philosophy at Athens. They knew stuff by reason which means when we use the word naturally, that's what we mean. So in the letter of the Romans, uh, St. Paul puts it this way. He says, when the Gentiles, i.e. the Greeks and us English, um, when the Gentiles who have not the law of Moses do by nature what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that what the law requires is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or perhaps excuse them. So what St. Paul's saying is that the Gentiles do lots of things that show that actually they already know the law. They already somehow have it written on their hearts. <coughs> so when the Christian missionaries go to the Gentiles and tell them what Jesus has said, when they give the fullness of what we have via the Bible and tradition and the magisterium, they are confirming, clarifying what already was written on the hearts of the Gentiles. Different image here, an image of a bird flying. So, a bird can fly naturally. 
It's in its nature to be able to do so. A fish can swim naturally. It's just what it's able to do. And the point is this. A human can know the natural law naturally. It's just in our nature. We have this capacity to know right from wrong. Now if you think of a baby bird, the baby bird has to learn how to fly, can struggle to fly. You can have a bird that's kind of a bit damaged in its ability to fly, but it's still, of its nature, it's able to fly. And a human, when we talk about the natural law, we're saying that we have a natural ability to know the law, to know what God wants us to do, right from wrong. Okay, let me put this in an example. So, two ways to know the moral law, this particular law, honour your father and mother. So this isn't a complicated law, but this is one of the Ten Commandments. So, you can know it because the Bible tells me so. Right, I turn to Exodus or Deuteronomy and I read the records of Moses being given the Ten Commandments. The Bible tells me, honour your father and mother. That is a record of supernatural revelation. But the Greeks, they also knew that you should honour your father and mother. They also had an awareness that this is just a moral way to behave, a moral obligation on us. So that same command you can know naturally, or you can know supernaturally. And what we as Catholics mean by the natural law is that actually every command about behaviour that we can find in the Bible, Revelation, is also able to be known by reason, by the Greeks. doesn't mean it can be known easily, but it can be known. Okay, what have I said at the bottom here? The Decalogue, i.e. the Ten Commandments, um, these are two quotations from the Catechism. The Decalogue contains a privileged expression of the natural law. The commandments of the Decalogue, although accessible to reason alone, i.e. unaided reason, have been revealed. So, all of the law that the Greeks were able to know, we've been given a privileged summary of it in what's been given to us in the Ten Commandments and in the other teachings, moral teachings in the Bible. Okay, before I move on, the, the distinction of knowing naturally and knowing supernaturally. Do you... any questions? Have I been relatively clear? So let me give an example then. So we're saying that the natural law, the law from God, can be known by philosophy, by reason. But what does that look like? If you make a, an argument, what would that, how would you structure it to show that reason can teach these things? Um, well, I'm going to give you a summary of uh, an example given by St. Thomas Aquinas when he is describing the natural law. And the example he's giving 
is about worship. And he's saying, actually, there's a law from God that all humans are obliged to worship the Creator. And he says, this is something everybody is able to know. This is a command of the natural law. So, that religion is natural to humans. So, some images of pagan worship here. You don't have to be Christian to know that you should worship God. Um, so here we have, um, I think this is the, uh, an altar of Mithras, um, animal sacrifice. Here, human sacrifice. Um, so they had a rather confused notion of what worship they should be doing, but they realized they should be giving some worship. And here, some weird pagan stuff. Um, again, they knew they should be worshipping, even if they didn't know how. That at the level of their nature, it was written on their hearts that they should worship the Creator. Okay, here's a long quotation. Um, so let me read the whole thing out. At all times and among all nations, there has always been the offering of sacrifices. Now that which is observed by all is seemingly natural. Therefore the offering of sacrifices is of the natural law. Natural reason tells man that he is subject to a higher being. And whatever this superior being may be, it is known to all under the name of God. Now just as in natural things, the lower are naturally subject to the higher, so too it is a dictate of natural reason, in accordance with man's natural inclination, that he should tender submission and honour according to his mode, to that which is above man. Now the mode befitting to man is that he should employ sensible signs in order to signify anything, because he derives his knowledge from sensibles. Hence it is a dictate of natural reason that man should use certain sensibles by offering them to God in sign of the subjection and honour due to him, like those who make certain offerings to their Lord in recognition of his authority. Now this is what we mean by a sacrifice, and consequently the offering of sacrifice is of the natural law. I'm going to pull that argument apart for you in a minute, but just the word sensible is meaning in the sense of having the five senses, so that I hear, I see, I smell, I taste. That what is a human being? A human being isn't an angel, he has senses. This is how I exist. So when I worship God, when I offer sacrifice, it should involve my senses. This is what he's saying. Okay, the structure of his argument. So he said a human being is two things. He's a lower being and a sensible being. Reason, therefore, concludes he should show honour to the higher and do so by using sensible offerings. And note what he uses in the argument. He draws on observation and experience. So he says, at all times, humans have done this thing. And he uses reason. The existence of a higher being implies that the lower being should honour the higher being. And note, the argument does not refer to Christ as the perfect example of sacrifice. 
So you might think, well, if you're going to give an argument for why you should offer sacrifice, you would point to Jesus. But that would be a supernatural example, not a natural example. So the type of argument he's using here is pointing out what the man who doesn't know Jesus, who doesn't know the Bible, who doesn't know the Old Testament or the New Testament, what he's able to figure out. Well, he is able to figure out that he should offer religion, offer sacrifice to this thing that all beings call God. So this is one example of a natural law argument. So uses observation and experience, um, uses reasoning, and it deduces things. But it doesn't use the Bible doesn't use what Jesus says. Just to take a step back a second and think why this is important, it's important because, particularly for us today, we live in a world where there are lots of people who don't know the Lord Jesus, who don't know anything about the particular way God has revealed himself. And we need to be able to talk to such people and have meaningful conversations about how we should behave. Well, because... God has revealed himself naturally, and everything he said supernaturally about how to behave, he's also said naturally. I'm therefore able to engage and have a conversation with non-Christians about the same things about how to behave. Because it's naturally knowable, not just supernatural. Any thoughts before we... They always say, those who don't believe in Jesus, they believe in a higher intelligence. But they, to them, it's not Jesus then. Right. But they have an awareness of something. But they have oh. awareness, like you said, they have awareness of a higher intelligence. And even an atheist who believes there is no higher intelligence, um, well, St. Thomas would point out, actually, the atheist is, if he uses his reason properly, able to realize there is a creator from which everything can, comes. But even the atheist who denies that there is a creator is able, using reason, to know all kinds of other things about how to behave. To know, to love, how to love, to forgive. Um, and also, like the Pope says, for the common good, isn't he? For the, yeah. The common good, like the commandments are for the common good. You don't need to be a Christian to... No, no. You don't need, yeah. Because all of the Ten Commandments are also revealed in their content by reason, naturally. Mm -hmm. um. Ah, yes. Okay. A false argument. So I gave you, before, what I was calling a real argument of natural law. Well, I want to give you an example of what in Catholic thinking would be a false argument, what might seem to be drawing on nature, but actually isn't nature as Catholics understand it. So we, we mean something specific when we're talking about um, the natural law and a natural law argument. So it's sometimes claimed that homosexual intercourse is natural, not just that it's a choice or a way to behave, but Many people today will say, well, it's just natural. 
That's the way some people are. And I have an image of two flamingos here. Um, because um, you sometimes get the argument structured in this way. So let me... So, some animals can be observed to engage in anal sex. Some animals seem to occasionally have homosexual couples. So just the last few years, a couple of headlines. Gay penguins steal eggs from straight couples. So, um, okay, a another article um, that had the title The Love That Dare Not Squawk Its Name about two birds. Um, and born-again flamingos have two loving daddies. Um, so I don't know what could be more gay than two pink flamingos. But, um, <laughs> so animals behaving this way. These are what these newspaper articles are reporting. And the conclusion that is drawn from this is that homosexual anal intercourse is deemed natural and in accord with the natural law. Now the point is, this isn't what the Catholic Church means when we talk about something being natural. Natural doesn't mean behaving like an animal. I'll say a bit more in a minute about what we do mean by natural, but it means in accord with our deepest nature, which reason is able to figure out. But it doesn't mean the law of the jungle um, or behaving like the animals. Uh, Janet Smith puts it this way, she says, Natural law does not mean imitating the animals. In particular, sex in humans has a significance beyond what it has in animals. So this isn't a valid natural law argument. So you don't actually need to observe much about human behaviour, in contrast with most animal behaviour, to realise actually that humans bond, and bond sexually, in a way that is much more significant for us than it is for animals. So there are some animals, like swans, that mate for life, but generally speaking that is an animal behaviour. But in humans, sexual bonding actually touches us at a much deeper level. So when we're talking about natural behaviour, it's what's natural to us, not imitating the animal. Alright. Okay, and I want to spell out, just to point out the, um, what we sometimes call the, the three categories. Precepts is the technical word for laws. The th three categories of the natural law. So the first, um, what are called the first and common precepts. These are things that are self-evident, indemonstrable, written on the heart. And what do we mean by self-evident? Well, here's an example. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Now you can't prove that, but you also can't deny it. That's what we mean by self-evident. That is something so basic you can't prove it. So, I'm standing here. I cannot prove that to you. And if you try and deny it, you're we're having a meaningless conversation. There are many truths that are similarly self-evident. 
and there are some, the very first precepts of the natural law are self-evident, like do unto others as you would have them do unto you. St. Thomas gives uh, these three, uh, oh, sorry, no, just before you make a comparison. So in terms of philosophy, the same thing cannot be denied and affirmed at the same time. Uh, this is called the first principle of speculative reason. Again, cannot be neither proved nor denied. So you can't both say, I'm standing here, and say, I'm not standing here. Um, that's a, the, the beginning point of philosophy. Um, okay, three examples here. Good is to be done and pursued, and evil is to be avoided. Do evil to no one. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. These are all self-evident. You might not be able to articulate it that clearly without help, but once it's been articulated, you can't deny it, but you also can't prove it. It's this first category. Now the second category are things called secondary precepts or quasi-conclusions of the primary precepts. These are, St. Thomas says, derived immediately and with little consideration from the first precepts. They're not self-evident, but they're very easy to realise. So an example of this is the precept to honour your father and mother. Now that's not self-evident, you do need to think a little about it, but you don't need to think much to realise you should honour your father. So actually, all of the Ten Commandments are in this section. So not to worship idols, to honour your father and mother, to not steal. All of those you're able to know immediately with a little consideration, but it's not self-evident. Now, because it's not self-evident, it's possible to not know it. So these precepts can be blotted out of the human heart three ways. By evil persuasions and false argumentation, by vicious customs, and by corrupt habits. So let's imagine a man growing up in my generation who lives in a culture where sexual promiscuity is common. It's just in the air all around my generation. This is the vicious custom all around me. For a man growing up when I was young, that was the custom around me. Therefore, to realise it was wrong was difficult. It wasn't, and it certainly wasn't self-evident. So a vicious custom can blot out this category. Evil persuasions. I knew the Catholic faith, knew Catholic morality when I left home, went off to university. While I was at university, I saw many of my Catholic friends fall victim to evil persuasions and false arguments, being told, actually, the church might tell you that, but it doesn't really matter. And they ceased to know right from wrong in terms of sexual promiscuity. Then the last way, a way that's actually quite frightening if you think about it, corrupt habits. 
So actually another pattern you know, that I saw in many friends, they started knowing that sexual promiscuity was wrong, but they did what they knew to be wrong. They did it often enough that they had a habit of doing it, and their own bad habit corrupted their ability to think properly. And they reached a stage where they, not, they weren't doing wrong and knowing it was wrong, but they no longer knew it was wrong. So everything in this category can be blotted out of the heart that way. Um, classical philosophy points to two examples. The ancient Germans didn't know that theft was wrong, um, and the ancient Greeks didn't know that homosexual intercourse was wrong. Cicero, I think it is, a Roman historian gives this example that the ancient Germans didn't know that theft was wrong. And the Romans realized that the Germans didn't know theft was wrong because the Germans kept stealing their stuff. Um, <laughs> it wasn't a very good argument, but nonetheless, philosophically, it's in this category. It's one of the Ten Commandments. It's something you're able to realize, or able to fail to realize, is wrong. And, you know, this theft's a pretty serious business, but there are people who don't realize theft is wrong. It can be blotted out of the heart. And then the third category, last of the three categories, what are called remote conclusions. And these are derived by demonstration from secondary precepts. So the secondary precepts are pretty easy, quick to learn from the things that are self-evident. There are other things that are mo more remote conclusions that are true, but take you longer to get to realising that point. Um, cheating in exams is wrong. This is a remote conclusion. So Italians do not know this. Um, <laughs> when, I, when I lived in Rome, um, and we, we all sat the same exams, and the, the English and the Americans and the Germans, um, we all knew that cheating in exams was wrong. But the Italian nuns, you would ask me, they'd go And they'd have their big habits, and during the exam you would oh. see them pull out these sheaths of answers. Um, so there are lots of remote conclusions that it's quite possible to not know are right and wrong, even though they are right and wrong. Um, now, this, in a sense, isn't a very serious example. But just because it's a remote conclusion, it might be something serious. Um, so, things that everybody knows that are self-evident. Things that aren't self-evident, but that can be known without much difficulty, but that it's possible to have blotted out of the heart. And then things that are more remote conclusions. Okay, a final point now. Nature, the end, and discerning the law. Um, I'm going to try and explain something in philosophy that in a sense isn't very complicated in that we do it all the time in our thinking, but just to point out what we mean. So nature. When we talk about nature, we're talking about what a thing is. Now as Catholics, we believe right and wrong exists. We believe truth exists. And we believe that truth is knowable. 
And we live in a world today where, from Descartes onwards, people have been doubting things that are self-evident. So that Descartes feels he has to prove that he exists. He has to give an argument that I think, therefore I am. Um, as Catholics, we believe it's possible to know the nature of a thing. What it is in itself. Now when you know the nature of the thing, you know what's called the end, or the purpose of a thing. So this is a mobile phone. It has the purpose of, well, so it's got a lot of different purposes, but primarily of communication. Um, that is a purpose that has been put into it by a human. When we're talking about nature, though, we're saying there are purposes in it that I don't choose to put in it, but that are in it by the Creator, that we call, therefore, an end. Evolution, similarly, would argue from the process by which in the evolution of the body and the evolution of animals to fulfill certain niches in their environment, that things have an end, a purpose, that isn't chosen by that individual, but exists before they come along. So a rabbit has big ears that it didn't choose to have, but that serve its purpose because it's the kind of creature in its environment that gets hunted, so it needs bigger ears um, to be able to avoid the hunter. If we know what a thing is, its nature, the type of thing it is, we know its end, its inbuilt purpose, then we're able to figure out and discern the right way to use it, the law. So let me say that a bit more fully. The nature of a thing can be deduced by observation, experience, and so forth. The end of a thing is known when we know its nature. The law directs us to the proper use of a thing, i.e. it directs us to use a thing in keeping with its nature, i.e. it directs us to use a thing in such a way that it achieves its end. And human reason can deduce all three of the above. You don't need the Bible. Human reason, philosophy can deduce this. Let me give you an example now. Ah, okay, sorry, different point first. When we talk about a human act being judged good, remember my very first talk, I talked about the image of a, a watch, and a good watch being one that achieves its purpose, its activity. A human act is judged good if it is in keeping with the end of the activity. A human act is judged evil if it is contrary to the end of the activity. Simple example, eating. Now the end of eating is nourishment. Pleasure attaches as the completion of a healthy human act, but pleasure isn't the end in itself of eating. Hume said there, for example, the intellectual delight in completing an essay. So St. Thomas says, God, the creator, has made human nature so that every human activity, when it's completed, has a pleasure that accompanies that completion. So I eat, and there's a pleasure that comes with the completion of eating. Um, even, this is an example I use for students, I guess, um, when they write an essay, the finishing of the essay, there is an intellectual delight that comes with that completion. It's not the physical pleasure that comes with eating, 
but that each activity has a type of pleasure that goes with the completion of it. You do a good deed for someone in your family. That doing of the good deed has a type of delight that's proper to that, a joy that comes with love. So there's a pleasure that attaches to nourishment. But what eating is about is actually nourishment. Pleasure attaches, it's a sign that the act is going well, but it isn't the purpose. The purpose is to be nourished, have a healthy body. Gluttony is contrary to the end of nourishment. It's just stuffing myself for the sake of a pleasure. Um, so that we measure the fact that it's a bad act because it, it's not in accord with the nature. The nature is nourishment. If I'm acting contrary to the nature by being gluttonous, I'm not achieving the end. And that's what we mean being an evil act. Second example, sexual intercourse. Now there is a twofold end in sex, procreation and the union of the couple. Pleasure attaches, again, at the completion of a healthy human act, but pleasure isn't the end in itself. Um, promiscuous sex is contrary to the end of the act. So promiscuous sex neither seeks procreation, new life, nor does it seek the union of the couple. It's just seeking random, short-term pleasure. Um, so it's contrary to the end of the act, contrary to the nature of the act. Therefore, it's contrary to the law. Okay, to summarize all that, then, what have I been saying? I've been saying there are two ways to know God's revelation, naturally and supernaturally. Uh, supernaturally, Mount Sinai, God giving the Ten Commandments to Moses, naturally, how he speaks all the time. And similarly, there are two ways of knowing the moral law. Naturally, which is what we mean by the natural law, and supernaturally. Alright, that concludes uh, my input.